Hello and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for spending some time with me today. I know there are a lot of choices out there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram, both at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. I'd love to know what you want to know about Cubs baseball. Welcome in to episode nine. In today's episode, I recap the last week of Cubs baseball and highlight some fantastic pitching performances and a sweep of the hated Mets, and then get into baseball rule changes. Baseball has had a rich history of rule changes, and I get into the recently announced changes from Rob Manfred and what those changes may mean for the Cubs going forward. Key among those is the pitch clock, which is an effort to cut dead air from baseball games. With that, I'm ready. Are you ready? Good. Here. We. Go. I'm thrilled you can join me for episode 9. In the weeks since I published my interview with hitting coach Chris Vasami, the Cubs have done well, especially on the pitching side. They finished the sweep of the Mets, I mean, who saw that coming? Lost two of three low-scoring games to Colorado, and then won two out of three in Miami. The Mets sweep was really gratifying, and it was definitely something Ron Santo would surely be thrilled about somewhere. In that series, Javier Assad beat Chris Bassett, Adrian Sampson outdueled Jacob deGrom just the way you'd draw it up, and then Drew Smiley had another excellent start in the finale. The Rockies series wasn't as good, but there was a huge buzz at Wrigley Saturday as Hayden Wisniewski made his Major League debut and did not disappoint, giving up a lone run in seven three-hit innings with no walks and seven strikeouts. The bullpen would give the game up in the ninth, but it was an excellent outing from Wisniewski, who will take the bump tonight in Pittsburgh. It's exciting to see Wisniewski come on after the trade for Afros earlier this season. He looks like he could be a key part of the Cubs' pitching rotation going forward. The Cubs then won two out of three against Miami behind another great start by Samson, who gave up one run in six innings, and was piggybacked by Adbert Alzaleg, who threw two scoreless innings with two strikeouts. In last night's finale, Keegan Thompson piggybacked on top of Stroman's good start and got the win, striking out six in three scoreless innings, scattering a hit and a walk. His stuff was absolutely filthy. I mean, he was throwing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs with Carey at the top of the zone. He was breaking off that slider, getting guys. His final strikeout was a was a half-swing sword, as the pitching ninja would call it, on a slider almost in the dirt. Um, he really looked excellent in his first appearance back from injury. I'm going to go a lot deeper into the emerging Cubs pitching as we look ahead to 2023, but it's important to take note of what we're seeing this year. We know the Cubs know how to build a bullpen on the fly year over year. The last couple of years have proved that. The Cubs have managed to put together really strong bullpens by bringing in a lot of veteran pitchers, developing, they're starting to develop young arms, which is exciting. So we can have confidence that next year they're going to have a good bullpen. It already looks like Adbert Alzale may be a good part of that bullpen. Brandon Hughes looks really good. Rowan Wick has his moments. It's not been a great season for him, but he's done in the past. I'm sure he'll get another shot. Um, Jeremiah Estrada came up, looked really good for a few outings when he was up with the Cubs earlier this year. Um, I think the Cubs are going to have great arms in the bullpen. I'm not worried about that. When you look at the starting pitching, that's where they've been short. And the second half of the season, things have been great. When you look at the Cubs pitching on the whole season, they're 21st in ERA at 420. They're tied for 17th with a strikeout rate of 22.4%. They're tied for 24th with an 8.7% walk rate. Um, if you look at ERA minus, which is a, an ERA stat adjusted for park factors and normalized across the league, such that 100 is league average, and XFIP, which is expected fielding independent pitching, which strips out 
um, fielding implications on the pitching results. XFIP minus, they're both adjusted to where 100 is league average. And unlike OPS plus and WRC plus, the pitching stats you actually want to be below. So a ERA minus of 90 is 10% better than the league average of 100. If you look at the Cubs on the season, their ERA minus is 104, which ranks them 20th. That's in the range of average to slightly below. And their XFIP is basically a league average 101, which ranks them in a tie for 16th place out of 30 teams. So overall, they've been average to slightly below average pitching. When you look at the first half of bullpen, when the Cubs had Scott Efros, David Robertson, Chris Martin, Michael Givens, among others, their XFIP was third in baseball at 91, almost 10% above average. And they were fifth in strikeout rate. Obviously, those numbers have gone down in the second half for the bullpen as those four guys I named have been traded off for other pieces. But in the first half, the starting pitching was really pretty dreadful. You had Kyle Hendricks injured for what's turned out to be most of the season. Wade Miley's made, as they joked on the compound the other day, Wade Miley may have made more starts in Iowa this year than Chicago. Um, Drew Smiley missed a good part of the first half of the season, as did Marcus Stroman. So they were really stretched out in the first half. But now in the second half, they've been healthier. Marcus Stroman's been good. Drew Smiley's been back. He's been good. Wade Miley's been back recently. Justin Steele was excellent before he went on the IL. Keegan Thompson had his ups and downs. And then there have been a couple surprises. Javier Assad has come up, and he's gotten hit hard in two starts, but for the most part, he's been pretty excellent. Adrian Sampson has pretty consistently eaten innings for the Cubs. He's gone five to seven innings almost every start. And when you look at the second half starting rotation, they're fourth in ERA minus at 78. They're third in baseball at ERA and 315. They're still giving up a few too many home runs. They're 19th in home runs at uh, in home runs per nine innings. But they're sixth in hard hit percentage and sixth in average exit velo. So the starters are getting through depth. They're not getting hit hard except for the home run balls. Um, it, but it's been really cool to see. It's been driven by better health, obviously, and then new pitching development. Uh, it's going to be exciting to watch next year. It looks like Marcus Stroman, Justin Steele would certainly have their spots in the rotation locked up. We'll see if Kyle Hendricks can come back healthy. There are some questions. I've seen conflicting reports about Drew Smiley's contract status. If you look him up on Track or Baseball Reference, it shows him as having a mutual option for next year, so the, he and the Cubs would have to agree on what appears to be a $5.25 million option. There were reports from Gordon Wittenmeyer that that was actually incorrect and that the contract is a club option for the Cubs at $10.2 million. Um, either way, I think his any option would be a no-brainer for the Cubs. He's pitched really well. He's shown in the past that he can be a good swing guy. He can be in the rotation. He can pitch out of the bullpen. He was really good in the postseason with the Braves last year. So he's a no-brainer to keep on the staff. So hopefully when the season gets to an end and we figure out what that what that contract option actually is, um, he and the Cubs can come to terms. He's He said he likes pitching in Chicago, and he's been here twice. So I'm going to take him at his word on that one. But when you look beyond that, you know, Keegan Thompson may have a shot at the rotation, although he's, he's pitched really well his entire career out of the bullpen. Um, Javier Assad is going to have a shot at the bullpen, Adrian, or at the rotation. Adrian Sampson's going to contend for roles. Now Hayden Wesneski is throwing. Um, Caleb Killian is sitting down there in AAA. And then if you look a little bit below, 
there are other guys. There's DJ Hers and Jordan Wicks, who are AA Tennessee, who I think may wind up pushing for time next year. Ben Brown, who the Cubs got in the trade for David Robertson, um, could make a push for the big leagues next year. There's a lot to like. We're going to dig pretty deep into the pitching development here in the next few episodes. So more to come on that. Today's main topic, I want to talk about the baseball rules that Rob Manfred announced about a week or so ago. Not only what those rules are and what that means for baseball, but really what does that mean for the Cubs in general? So to start, I'm going to take us back a little bit into baseball history. Baseball changes. It always has. It always will. But it never changes easy. There's always pushback. There's always, we don't want these changes. Don't wreck our wonderful game. Um, There's a good book by Peter Morris called, But Didn't We Have Fun? He talks a lot about the uh, Knickerbocker rules that were adopted in the 1850s and basically were the precursor for what is currently the modern game. You can watch over the second half of the 1800s and how those rules change and gradually morph and adapt into the rules we have now. Um, But he quoted a Cincinnati writer in the book who recalled, the old town ball clubs managed themselves gradually into baseball clubs and slowly but reluctantly, one by one, they fell in with the new system. It required time and much persuasion to accomplish the revolution. The old love fought hard against invasion, but the new love, by force of reason and persistency, won its way gradually into the town ball sport and finally superseded the old game entirely. Change comes. Change always comes in baseball, and it's always fought, and usually it sticks. When you look back at the 1850s, and that book is a great resource, I would recommend anybody to go read it, you know, baseball and town ball variants were seen as you know snappier, more fast-paced versions of sports like cricket. It's kind of amusing to look at now that baseball was the the fun, energetic, and snappier sport. There were a lot of variants across the country. You had the Knickerbocker rules in New York. There was the Massachusetts game up in New England. There were a lot of variations of what was called town ball. Eventually, the Knickerbocker rules took over, and it's it's frankly kind of amazing that it did. Uh, There were some players who traveled the country through moving and military assignments and all that that uh, kind of spread the word. And eventually, a lot of those town ball leagues started to sort of centralize on the Knickerbocker rules. They had patch ball in Michigan. Um, Peter Morris also tells us about Brooklyn native Merritt Griswold, who moved to St. Louis, and he was trying to spread the game. There was a St. Louis club that reluctantly agreed to have him teach them the Knickerbocker rules, and they all hated it. See, St. Louis has always been boring. But they had him come back the next day because, I'll quote Peter Morris, quoting Merrick Griswold here, quote, they began to kind of like it. Here's another anecdote from the Morris book from Jerome Trowbridge, who recalled a fellow club member who went to school in Poughkeepsie and learned the game. This friend came back to Kalamazoo to try to get the club to try new rules, and Trowbridge observed, we tried it and were thoroughly disgusted with the whole thing. We wanted to go back to the old game, but he kept at us, telling us that it was... This would soon be the only game that would be played, and he was right. We kept at it, but there were a great many things that we could not get used to. We still wanted to patch a man. In some way, we could not get used to this new way of putting a man out. Patching was a really common rule. It was also called soaking. There were a number of different names for it, but patching consists of what we all did probably as eight-year-olds playing wiffle ball in the backyard. You field the baseball. You throw the ball at the runner. If you hit the runner, they're out. Um one of the big things the Knickerbocker rules did was take patching out of play. You stop throwing the ball to the runner, throwing the ball at the runner, you start throwing the ball to a base to get the man out. 
Through the early years of baseball in the late 19th century, the game just kept changing very gradually into the game we know today. I hear a lot of complaints every time there's talk about new rules, like baseball is baseball. It's the same. It's simple. It shouldn't change. Four balls is a walk. Three balls is a strike. Nine innings is a game. None of those things were true in the early days. Until I think it was 1857, they played first team to 21 runs after a completed inning. So they didn't even play nine innings. Um, in 1857, they they standardized the game on nine innings. No, no more playing to 21. I think it might take this Cubs team about 48 innings to get to 21 runs some days. But four balls, three strikes? Nope. The game got there eventually, but it often went there kicking and screaming. The very first walks entered the game in 1878, and it took nine balls for a walk. Over the years, it was gradually reduced to four balls, like we have today, by 1889. In 1879, the batters were given a fourth strike, a rule that would only last one season before returning to the three strikes in your out rule. In the early days, batters could reach base on foul balls until 1857. And fair balls and foul balls caught on one hop were outs beginning in 1858. The fair ball rule was changed to a what would be a modern catch being an out in 1864. So there's six years of one hop grounders being outs, but foul balls caught in a hop continued to be outs until 1882. There were no substitutions allowed until 1889 when one predetermined sub could be used at the end of any complete inning in 1890. That was changed to two subs who could enter at any time. And in 1891, it changed to the modern substitution rules where anybody could come in at any time, but once you leave a game, you cannot re-enter. How about rules to speed up the game? We hear about the pitch clock and the effort to speed the game up. That's not new either. Until 1901, so remember this goes back to the 1840s, 1850s. Until 1901, foul balls that were not caught by the defense were not counted as strikes against the hitter. The rule changed to the modern rule we use today in order to pick up the pace of play. Remember the fourth strike rule in, I referenced in 1879? Batters had four strikes, called or swinging, in addition to any number of foul balls. A hitter could foul off six pitches, then take three strikes, foul off two more, before swinging and missing for strike four. Imagine this before the 1889 substitution rule changes. It's a far cry from today's pitching. Speaking of pitching, it took 36 years from the adoption of the Knickerbocker rules in 1857 to get the pitcher set at 60 feet 6 inches from home plate with his drive foot on a pitching rubber. This was also the same year flat-sided bats were prohibited. In those 36 years, pitching evolved from someone not even being able to take a step while tossing underhanded, to sidearm deliveries, to the ability to move anywhere within a defined box as close as 50 feet to home plate. Picture the pitching distance for most 12 to 13-year-olds today and put a grown man there. Obviously, the game has changed a lot. In fact, at one point, they actually put a rule in that the pitcher had to be facing the hitter before they could release, so I'm not quite sure what that refers to, but I bet it'd be pretty entertaining. Intentionally dirtying a new ball started being phased out in 1908. At the time, dirty baseballs were really common. The spitball was outlawed in 1920, the same year that Cleveland's Ray Chapman died after being hit in the head by a pitch from Carl Mays. Even with the death of Chapman, baseball fought the rule change and grandfathered the spitter in for guys who had already been making a career with the pitch. I know a few years ago there was a rule change to require a relief pitcher to face three batters. Until 1909, a relief pitcher was not even required to face one batter. That rule was changed at that point. The mound wasn't regulated in height until 1950, when the mound height was set at 15 inches, and would later be dropped to 10 inches after a long run of dominant pitching, maybe most notably by the Cardinals' Bob Gibson. 
The strike zone definition has ebbed and flowed over the years, even before accounting for differences from umpire to umpire. While so many of these rule changes happened long, long ago, the designated hitter is pretty modern, and it's one of the it's been one of the bigger changes in the way the game is played. It was brought to the American League in 1973 and not brought permanently to the National League until just this year. After a pretty long gap, baseball implemented testing for performance-enhancing drugs in 2005 and then started instant replay in 2008, but only on a limited basis for fair and foul home run calls. Some of the most loudly protested rule changes over the years have been expansions to the playoffs. Everybody wants the purity of the sport that they remember when they were a kid, kind of forgetting that, you know, baseball has changed this over time too. The very first change in postseason came in 1903 when the American League and that National League agreed to play in the first World Series, putting the champions of each league against one another. That continued on until 1969 when the first sort of tournament-style championship came out. Baseball divided each league into two divisions. The division winners would play each other in the league championship series, then those two winners would go on to play in the World Series. The very first division series was actually played in 1981 in the strike-shortened season when they had the first-half champions and the second-half champions. They played a division series to then determine who would play in the championship series. After that, the next big change came in 1995. Baseball went to three divisions per league and instituted a wild card for the first time. In 2012, Major League Baseball added a second wild card team, and this year the postseason expands to 12 teams, up from the recent 10. This still puts baseball with a smaller percentage of teams qualifying for the postseason than the NFL, NBA, and NHL. I know a lot of fans think that waters down the regular season, but personally, I kind of like it. But don't get me started on the Manfred Man or the zombie runner or whatever it is you want to call the extra runner and that gets put on second base to start every extra inning. It's not the end of the world, but as much as I usually support or I'm at least willing to try rule changes, I'm kind of a get-off-my-lawn guy here. I do wish that would go away, and I think it's supposed to. I'm going to have to look that one up and, and maybe update in a future episode. So baseball changes. It always has. It always will. So what do the recently announced rule changes mean for the Cubs going forward? First, let's recap the rules themselves. There were four big primary rule changes. Number one is the pitch clock. There's going to be 15 seconds with nobody on base between pitches. And with a runner on base, the pitcher has 25 seconds to throw the next pitch. The clock will reset with a step off or a timeout or a mound visit. But it's not just on the pitcher. The hitter has time requirement too and can can only call timeout once. The batter must be in the batter's box with attention facing the pitcher by the time there's nine seconds left in the pitch clock. This will have some impact. I mean, one play that comes to mind immediately is Wilson Contreras stepping in the batter's box against Ryan Madsen in 2018, right before David Bodie's ultimate slam. Wilson Contreras called timeout. I think it was three times. He just kept calling time, and Madsen kept stalling. Neither one of those guys would be able to do what they did under the new rules. But that did ultimately lead in Wilson getting hit by a pitch, and then David Bodie came up as a pinch hitter and hit that amazing slam that we all remember. The second big rule change is banning the shift. It means you can only have four infielders on the infield. Um, All four infielders have to be in the infield. They have to be in front of the outfield dirt. And two have to be on each side of second base. This can be reviewed if there's a call saying that the defense was not properly or that the defense was illegally shifted. Um, There is no restriction for outfielders, interestingly enough. So if somebody wanted to say, play that shallow rover in right field against a left-handed power bat, you could move your center fielder into play kind of a shallow rover 
and shift your left fielder over into left center or even center. Or you could take that left fielder and put them in that pocket over there. But you won't be able to have an infielder over there. And that rule will change the balance equation, the, the risk equation for that play. Right now, when you put the third baseman at shortstop and move the shortstop over into shallow right field, you're playing tendencies, you're playing to where you're going to pitch the ball. But it also means that the offense has the ability to hit that weak ground ball through third base. It gives up a, a base. It's not typically going to be a catastrophic play. If they shift the outfield and all of a sudden now there's nobody in left field because the left fielder is either playing center or playing that shallow rover, now that left-hander, if he's able to get under a ball, pop that thing out into even medium-depth left field, I mean, that's a that's a double and, and base runners are going to be off to the races. So that is something that will still leave some shifting on the table, but it does change the risk equations there somewhat. There's also a limit now on pitcher step-offs or pick-offs. They're, they're calling it disengagements. So if the pitcher disengages from the rubber, that counts as one. There's a limit of two disengagements per plate appearance, and that number will reset if a runner advances. So if you were the pitcher and you make a pick-off throw, and then you throw a ball, you throw a strike, you make another pick-off throw, you can't throw over there again. Well, technically you can. You can throw over a third time. But if the runner is not picked off or caught stealing on that play, then it's a balk, and every runner on base gets an additional base. But if that runner then steals second, you're reset. You get those two step-offs again. And this is where the hitters being able to call timeout only once comes into play. If the hitter calls timeout, obviously that's not going to count as a step-off or a disengagement for the pitcher. The other rule is going to an 18-inch square base. Currently, bases are 15 inches, which was a rule set in 1877, so it's been a long time. They're going to look a little clownish when they first get out there. I've seen them, and they're, they're huge. But the, up, the real upshot is that batters will have an inch and a half less to run from home to first. Runners will have four and a half inches less real estate to cover between first and second and second and third. And then the runner going home from third base is an inch and a half closer. Um We'll get into more of this in, the, in a minute, but you know it does also put the first baseman three inches closer to the play, depending on how well they're able to play their angle on that base and take advantage of the, the real estate. You know, when these rules were announced, I heard a lot of hand-wringing and, and complaints from some of the usual places. Um, obviously, I've talked about how the game changes over the years, and nobody ever really wants the game to change. Like I said, baseball changes, but it doesn't change easy. It gets fought, and it gets fought, and it gets fought. We talk about... I've heard people say, you know, banning the shift, which actually I'm not in favor of banning the shift. I think it's a defensive strategy that comes with its own penalty, potentially, if the offense takes advantage of it. But I understand where they're going with it. You know, sort of wrecks the beauty of baseball, but I don't I don't really understand the wrecking the beauty of baseball argument when the shift was never really widely employed until the Tampa Bay Rays started doing it in the late 2000s. It happened occasionally before then. Most famously, it was done by Lou Boudreau and the Indians against Ted Williams back in his heyday. Um, but it's not something that's super common. When I grew up in the 80s, I was watching the Cubs and I was watching the Cardinals and I was watching Ozzie Smith cover miles of ground at shortstop, but he was always playing at shortstop. So it's not something that you know has a long, entrenched history that's going to be painful to pull away. You know, Another complaint I've had since these rules were announced is baseball doesn't have a clock. Well, obviously the game still doesn't have a clock. The whole point of the baseball doesn't have a clock angle is 
in football or basketball, you're down by a huge amount of points and there's, you know, basketball, you're down 20 points and there's two and a half minutes left in the game. You're not coming back. That game's over. In football, for the most part, you're down three scores and there's a minute 12 on the clock. That game's over. In baseball, there's no clock. You have to get 27 outs. So whether we have a pitch clock or not, you're down six runs going to the bottom of the ninth. The other team still has to get outs number 25, 26, and 27. You know, I I don't really have a big complaint there. And in fact, I'm very much in favor of the pitch clock. Um, over the last decade, the time between pitches over the course of games has creeped up a full three seconds, which has added almost 15 minutes of no action whatsoever to the average baseball game. And it gets even worse in the playoffs. I've got three boys. Um, one of them's off to college now, but I've got, you know, my youngest one is very into baseball now and he's 11. He'll be 12 this winter. It's really hard to stay up for those playoff games. Not only do they start late, but then you get into the bullpens and the pitching changes and it's slow and everybody's deliberating over every pitch because they're so critical. But we're taking a generation of fans and not letting them see maybe the what should be the pinnacle of the sport. Um, so I'm all in favor if we can do things to cut 20, 30, 40 minutes off games. I, I love going to the games and I do, you know, more baseball is always good to me, but we're, we're talking about the pitch clock. We're not talking about more baseball. We're not talking about any extra pitches being thrown. We're not talking about any extra action. We're talking about more time spent. Now, in, in the sun at Wrigley Field is a pretty good place to be, but we're talking about more time spent watching nothing happening. There was a SB Nation piece in 2017 by Grant Brisby. I'll drop the link in the show notes. This showed that the average total dead time between pitches in the average game in 1984 was 32 minutes and 47 seconds. In 2014, that was up to 57 minutes and 41 seconds. A good example of this, I'm sure a lot of you can remember, um, Pedro Baez, relief pitcher for the Dodgers, has been known as the human rain delay. And obviously the Cubs got to see him a couple times in the playoffs in 2016-2017, and he just works as slow as he could possibly work. There was a Fangraphs blog post by Jeff Sullivan from February 2017. Again, I'll drop the link in the show notes. This centered around the human rain delay himself facing the Cubs and David Ross in Game 1 of the NLCS in 2016. The Cubs were ahead 3-1, Game 1, bottom of the 6th. Javi Baez was on 2nd. And Pedro Baez went 111 seconds. Yes, 111 seconds without throwing a pitch. Ross was the first one to call timeout. But then after he got back in the box, Pedro just stared at him for 30 seconds without coming set. So Ross called timeout again. Here are some of Jeff Sullivan's words from that column. My favorite thing about this, Baez remaining on the rubber. He stands there as if to implore Ross to hurry up. Batters do that sometimes, staying in the box even when the pitcher steps off. It's a way for them to convey that they're ready, that they've never been more ready, and to say, no offense, but you're being super annoying. Let's please get back to baseball. Baez and Ross go back and forth, and then Baez makes the weakest of weak pickoff moves to second base. We're now a good minute into pitch number two of the at-bat. After the move, Joe Buck asks Ken Rosenthal on the national broadcast, Hey, Kenny, would you like to fill some time here? And after several more seconds without the pitch thrown, Buck says, This Baez is really tough to watch. And still a few seconds later, Buck says, The defense is just standing there flat-footed while he's just taking forever. Jeff, in his most Jeff Sullivan manner, I miss him since he left Fangraphs to go work in the Rays front office, sums up Baez finally throwing a pitch here. Quote, Baez scrapes at the dirt. The dirt's fine. He looks back at second. 
All the same people are still there. He looks down and shifts his weight from leg to leg. He scrapes a little more and he looks at his catcher. I'm starting to think the catcher is complicit in this in some way. As Baez is looking, Adrian Gonzalez isn't. Howie Kendrick is looking, but he's thinking about soup. Baez comes set. He breathes deeply, then explodes into action. The pickoff attempts have accomplished nothing as the runner reads him like a book. But there's a pitch, and it's fouled, which means Baez will have to throw at least another pitch. Those are the kinds of things that we're ready to get rid of in baseball. Um, I don't think the, the pitch clock is actually going to have that big of an impact on the game. I think we're already seeing a class of young pitchers. As I watch you know, Cubs youngsters come up, Hayden Wisniewski, Adrian Sampson, maybe he isn't so young, but he's pitched a lot in the minor leagues, Jeremiah Estrada, Brandon Hughes. like These guys come up, they've spent their whole minor league career with a pitch clock. And the pitch clock in the minor leagues has been pretty successful. Um, by most reports, on average, it's taken about 24 minutes off a typical game. And a lot of minor league games are getting done in under three hours. Um, I can attest to that. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we have the Charlotte Knights here. I go to a good number of games, and we've had the pitch clock here for several seasons now. And it, the game moves. It's snappy. It moves right along. But you don't even notice the pitch clock is there. It's not something everybody's obsessing over. I don't know that I can recall a single penalty being called. Um, I think adding a ball to the pitcher if they're too slow or adding a strike to the hitter if they're messing around and not being in the box where they're supposed to be is probably pretty fair. I assume a few of those will get called in the major leagues next year. But for the most part, guys are going to adjust to the pace of play, and it's going to be fine. And I think we're all going to be fine with not having Pedro Baez taking a taking 111 seconds between pitches. The step-off rules in the larger bases are going to kind of work together and should ultimately increase in stolen base attempts by changing the underlying math on the value of a stolen base. Right now, there has been a real drastic pullback in stolen base attempts as compared to, say, the baseball I grew up with in the 1980s. Um, It just doesn't make sense to risk getting that runner thrown out when so many guys are hitting doubles and whatever you know there are many opportunities to score from first wait for a walk that type of thing Um, but now it's going to make it a little bit more a little bit more likely to be successful on that steal you get your lead off by the time you take the in the three inches of first base and add it to the extra inch and a half at second that's now constricting the amount of space you have to cover you know some of those bang bang stolen base plays at second base are now going to be easily safe So I think we're going to see more stolen base attempts. I think another kind of underrated benefit of this rule change is that those plays where, and we've seen it from, say, a Suzuki a few times this year, um, it happens across baseball. It's it's not just him. I've just noticed it a couple times in the last month. Um, Where a runner slides hard into a base and they overslide the base and they just barely can't keep their hand on it. Well, this extra three inches gives you an extra three inches to drag the hand and grab and hopefully prevent some of those slide-offs, which I think is going to be good for baseball. I do actually wish they would have added one more piece to this, one thing that's a giant pet peeve of mine. I love instant replay for the most part, but when they do that instant replay and they show that a guy's sliding feet first into a base, beats the tag, and the defense is able to keep the tag on the runner, and the you know, spike catches and his foot pops off the base for just a fraction of a second and comes right back down on. Like, I'm not talking about oversliding the base. That's on the base runner. But those times where just through the laws of physics, you hit the base, you pop off briefly, you're still very much over the kind of aerial space of the base. I would love to see that taken away so that, 
we're not having replays just to review to see whether a guy popped off. Again, you slide past the base. Awesome. I'm very much in favor of replay. Let's get these calls right. But I think it's, I think that'd be a great rule to get away. But back to the main point, um, I think it's going to increase stolen base attempts. And when you look at the Cubs, I think the Cubs are, have already been on an uptick in stolen bases during the David Ross era. In 2019, they were 29th in baseball with 45 stolen bases. Since then, the Cubs were 17th in 2020. And they're currently fourth in baseball with 99 steals um, after being 10th last year. So with this trend and with the speed on the roster from guys like Nico Horner, Christopher Morrell, Ian Happ, and others, this might be an area of increased value, especially if the team is going to continue to increase their overall contact rate. One thing that may also come into play with these added bases is it may make the Cubs, the Cubs in particular, may hit and run more. Um, With the increased contact rate, some increased speed, a little bit more math behind them to get those stolen base attempts in. Um, the Cubs have been one of the worst teams in the in baseball with double plays. And some of that comes from you know the overall contact rate. So in 2021, the Cubs had the highest strikeout rate in baseball. And they're, you know, they've moved to seventh worth worst this year. They struck out 26.7% of plate appearances last year. This year it's 23.7. They're currently tied for 16th in hard contact rate, basically the same as last year, um, right around the middle of the league. But when you take account more contact, pretty consistent hard hit ball rate, maybe they even increased that. The Cubs were fifth in baseball last year with 133 double plays grounded into, and they're third this year at 125. If the Cubs hit and run more, take advantage of that stolen base, they may be able to cut those numbers down. And then now this contact lineup really starts to play more, especially, obviously, if they can add more big bats. So let's move on to the shift. The shift is going to be an interesting one to watch. And I think when people hear the shift, what they probably think of more than anything else is guys like Anthony Rizzo, those lefty power bats who get up there and the defense is trying to take away you know, their, their pull power to left field. Um, naturally, lefties do tend to pull the ball a lot because, as Chris Fasami got into in the last episode, they face more right-handers than they do left-handers, especially as the lefty pl- platoon splits are hard. So those breaking pitches are typically running into a lefty bat. The right-handed curveball, the slider, um, kind of everything but the right-handed changeup is running in toward the lefty bat. So what pitchers try to do is they decide, all right, these guys already want to pull the ball. So now I'm going to throw them hard stuff inside. I'm going to try to bust them on the hands. And they're going to pull. And then we're going to put an extra defender over there. We're going to cheat center over. And we're going to try to take away those. So the hitters have had two choices. They can continue doing what they're doing and really try to drive the ball and try to drive it over the shift. You know, hit the pull home runs to right, get things deep into the corner, get them off the wall to left to right center. Um, Or... They could go the other way, and as again, as Chris Vasami talked about last time, and as Ted Williams talks about in, in his book on hitting, famously, it's not always just easy to go hit the other way. You know, you're a left-handed bat, and now in 2022, you're catching a lot of velo that's riding in on your hands. Well, it's really hard to get that inside pitch on your hands and get hit with any kind of authority the other way. So. The guys have the option. That's why you see a lot of lefties bunting as opposed to actually hitting the other way because pitchers are pitching to the shift. They're pitching inside. Um, they want to get you to pull right into that shift. And so that's what's going to go away. I don't. I, I think it's a little overblown. I think we remember those plays. 
Um, it may not have as much impact as we think it will. Again, I sort of mentioned this earlier, with the shift gone, defenses are either going to have to play more straight up and then pitch accordingly. So if if you're pl- facing Anthony Rizzo and you know he's pull prone and you have to play him more straight up, you still might cheat the shortstop over, you know, kind of up the middle, but keep him on the shortstop side of second base. But you're going to pitch him more straight up too. You're going to throw more outside pitches. You're going to try to get him to you know, force him to go the other way or try to get him to roll over on outside pitches. Um Again, if teams shift the outfield, it's a totally different risk scenario. And now you're opening up a lot of space in the outfield. And if you can get a ball out there, they run a lot more. In the past, it's been a win. You know, if, if you're facing an Anthony Rizzo or another lefty power bat, you put the shift on and he does consciously go the other way, slows down a swing, gets bad on ball, gets a weak rounder to third base. All right, you know, you gave up a hit and that's a penalty for the pitching team and the defense. But you also took a power bat out of play because you made him do something other than try to go for power. Um, there's also going to be an increased premium on defensive infielders. I think over the past few years, you've been able to take a second baseman who maybe isn't particularly defensively strong, you know, shift that shortstop over into right, kind of give you two guys on that side of the infield. So it doesn't matter if the second baseman has a lot of range or not. A ball that maybe is just out of his grasp is now something that. You know, Nick Madrigal can't get to a ball. Nico Horner's fielding it in shallow right and throwing the guy out first base. Now, as you go to a world without the shift, the ability to cover ground is more and more important. I, I don't think it changes third base much. Um, it doesn't really change shortstop because shortstop is already a position where you want a lot of range. But it does, I think, really change that first base, second base dynamic. Um, first baseman may feel compelled to come off the bag a little bit more than they maybe they have been the past few years. And it's going to put more of a premium on second baseman who can cover ground. So in that front, you know, if the Cubs do look at signing one of the big shortstop free agents this offseason, like a Carlos Correa, Dansby Swanson, Trey Turner, or Xander Bogarts, it gives them the ability to flip Nico Horner back over to second base, where he's been already playing gold glove caliber defense before he played moved to shortstop this year. So I think that's something that really actually could benefit the Cubs. And the Cubs currently don't really have not they don't have lefty power bats. Ian Happ gets out on his fair share of shift balls caught, but I don't think that's going to hit the Cubs as much as it's it's going to hit some teams in the league. So all in all, as we look to next year, I think the Cubs are going to have to look at the roster, look at the rule changes, and see where there's impact. I think it's going to put a more emphasis on speed and contact. Obviously, that's something baseball is trying to b- bake into these rules. They want action. They want more activity. They want, ideally, I think everybody kind of likes strikeouts, but also kind of hates strikeouts. Um, Love to see the walk style down. Would love to see a little bit of a reduction in the three true outcomes. And I think you see that with this Cubs team now. So I think if they can build on that, add a couple bats, get this lineup deeper, make sure they keep some speed in the lineup and some aggressiveness on the bases like they've been doing, I think that's something that really could work in the Cubs' favor. And then as far as the shift goes, you just have to look at that, and they're going to have strong pitching. So it's going to hurt a little bit in the sense that you can't take excellent defensive players and maybe put them exactly where the scouting report says guys are going to hit the ball. But they'll still have the ability to make some adjustments, and then I think the Cubs have the personnel, especially if they pick up another shortstop, to be able to have pretty good range kind of all over the field. I think Nick Madrigal actually played some pretty decent second base. I don't know if he had, I don't think he has a lot of range. I think the Cubs were able to kind of hide that by having Nico Horner behind him on shift plays. 
Um, but I think the Cubs have the ability to put forward a strong defense that's really going to help this emerging pitching staff. And hopefully they can get enough guys on base, do enough on the bases where they're getting some of those now gap hits, some of those balls hit into the shift in the infield or the outfield. Maybe they fall for hits. You're scoring a few more runs, and that's going to make all the difference for the Cubs. I would love to get your thoughts on the rule changes and how you think they'll affect the Cubs. To join the conversation, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at CubsPS+. Thank you for spending time with me today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I definitely did. Please take 10 seconds and drop a rating and review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever it is you find your podcasts. Just a few seconds will help me get better and help others find the show. This is Mike Waller signing off from the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball and every day talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. I hope you have a great day and go Cubs.